Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Callie Smith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Anita Guarini about her book, Experimenting with Humans and Animals, From Aristotle to CRISPR. As a warning, this conversation will include discussion of human and animal suffering. In this book, Guarini traces the long history of human and animal experimentation in the West, She states, my purpose in writing this book is not to resolve any of these issues or to project current moral sensibilities back on historical actors, but to provide readers with the materials to understand their history and therefore understand their present. Animal and human experimentation are unlikely to disappear in the foreseeable future, but discussion of these values that dictate policies for its conduct must come from an informed public. Anita Garini, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Callie. I really appreciate it. Of course, we're delighted. So you're actually a returning guest to the podcast. Um, You last spoke with us in 2015 about your book, The Courtier's Anatomist, Animals and Humans in Louis XIV's Paris. Um, But you've had a busy past few years, I'm assuming, uh, getting this second edition together. So what have you been up to uh, since we last spoke? Oh, well, um, so I I, uh, retired at the end of uh, 2018 and spent most of 2019 in Europe doing research, which was really nice. It was kind of my retirement sabbatical. And then I came back um, and in 2020, I spent January um, teaching an intercession course at Colby College and um, came back in February and just in time for COVID. So most of 2020, like everybody else, I was uh, locked down at home and kind of looking for something to do in some ways. I mean, I had lots of projects, but I knew that a lot of people were still using the first edition of this book, and it was kind of dated. Um, A lot of things had happened in between. I had published things that um, I kind of wished I had included in the book including things on ecological science. And I was at um, Oregon State for 10 years, which is um, an ag school, and was on the IACUC there, the Animal Care and Use Committee, and realized there's a whole slew of research on rangeland animals, on farm animals that I had didn't really know much about when I wrote the first edition of this book 20 years ago, and I thought I should include that too. So I wrote to um, the editor at Johns Hopkins, who had published the first edition, a different editor, because the first editor had retired, and said, hey, are you interested in a second edition? And he said, yes, we are, very enthusiastically. So that's what I spent 2020 working on, kind of in with great consciousness of COVID and of the role animals played in developing the COVID vaccine particular, but just kind of 
how epidemics figured into all this. So um, that's so I finished this um, pretty much at the end of 2020, spent 2021 doing the revisions and um, getting the illustrations and all those things. And then it just came out this past August. That's wonderful. Um, I'll have to say, yeah, one one reason that really grabbed my attention for wanting to read this book and to talk with you is, of course, the pandemic and the development of the vaccine. And actually, from where I live, 15 minutes down the road, is a primate um, testing facility. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, and as someone who who chose to get vaccinated and, and you know, really thought the benefits were worth it, um, it still really weighs on me, um, of course, the, the animal lives and the human lives that were involved as well. So, um so thank you for, for creating an updated edition. Um, I was reading some Amazon comments, and I think there were some students saying, a sign for a course, a must read. <laughs> so I know there'll be many others out there um, who will benefit from this new edition. So returning to just the general concept of the book, why humans and animals together? Yeah, when I wrote the first edition, I thought, and this was back in the, the late 90s, um, I thought I would just do it on animals because I had been teaching a course for quite a while at UC Santa Barbara on the history of animals and science, basically. And my editor at Johns Hopkins, um, who Bob Brueger at the time, said, no, I think you should look at both animals and humans. And I hadn't worked on human experimentation at all. So that was new for me. But I'm really glad that he suggested that because they do kind of go together. You can't really have one without the other. No, that's great. And I think, you know, even though we call this an animal studies channel and um, most of the books really are looking solely at animals, the human's never out of it, you know, because we're the ones <laughs> writing it. Um, but especially, I think it's interesting, you know, as you say, um, the conversation really isn't between science and ethics, it's science and the social pressure surrounding that. Um, can you say more about how, how society has really shaped the course of experimentation? Well, I think, um, yeah, let me think about that a bit. So looking back historically, um, both animals and certain classes of humans were simply considered open open territory for us to use in any way we felt fit and that includes you know enslaved people but also at various times children women um handicapped people and so forth so i think acknowledging how those standards changed over time is important um figuring out but also, on the other hand, figuring out what we learned from these kinds of experimenting. Um, sometimes really great things, sometimes things that turned out not to really be relevant. Um, and how that's become ingrained in how we do science, that we do biological science basically based on standards that were developed, you know, 500 years ago, that animal and human experimentation is just part of how we do it. Um, 
And I'm not saying that's that's good or bad, but I'm saying that we we should acknowledge that that's how science has been done, and that's how it's developed historically over time in in the West. And returning to you know who has been um, experimented on historically, you have a really important discussion about categories such as vile bodies and people being classified as monsters, and so this includes. Um, you know, people who were deemed disposable or of least value. And you identified some of those groups, like enslaved persons, women, orphans. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to add about those distinctions and how, even if we think we have hoped to overcome them more recently, how they still sort of haunt us? Yeah, um, the concept of vile bodies is from a French author named Grégoire Chamayou, who wrote a really interesting book called Vile Bodies, Les Coville. Um, about 15 15 years ago, at least. Um, And the idea is that you have to kind of classify someone as vile before you think you can do these kinds of things to them. So either humans or or animals. He's talking mainly about humans. Um, And when you were saying something about like you have to label something as vile in order to experiment on it, it made me think of another point you make about um, whenever James Juren started using um, numbers. Statistics, yeah. Yeah, statistics and how that's kind of also been built into this like depersonalization. Absolutely. Um, and, And that was, I mean, his use of statistics, which is based on basically game theory, was very important in um, promoting the use of inoculation and then later vaccination and other development of other vaccines that you um, show that you can demonstrate that people who were inoculated in that period in the 18th century with smallpox um, died less from fewer of them died from smallpox than people who just caught smallpox naturally. And that was really convincing, the idea that numbers were convincing. But in order to do that, then you're not thinking of people as individuals. You're thinking of people as units, as statistical units. And that's um, become, you know, that's really the basis of science. I was, I've just been writing something on the kind of polio pioneers in the 1950s, the children who first tested the um, sock vaccine in 1954, And again, they wanted um, statistical proof that this existed. So they um, gave the vaccine to hundreds of thousands of children with with their parents' consent. Um, And it wasn't obviously about the individual children, except to their parents. It was about the statistical proof that this vaccine was effective. So when the numbers were crunched, and this was before there were really, you know, big computers to do this, and it took almost a year to crunch the numbers, then it came out that the vaccine was 80 to 90% effective against polio. So that is a really good example, though, of the kind of depersonalization of it. Each individual child um, certainly knew they were being part of this, and their parents were, were conscious of the individuality of their children, but we didn't have anybody's names in the um, in the final report in April 1955 that yes, this polio vaccine works, and here's you know 600,000 children who tried it. So that and that's just kind of how 
because statistical proof has become really important in experimentation, it doesn't take account of the individual. The individual number. Yeah. um, And I do want to jump back in a moment to the beginning of the book, because I I would love to give listeners a sense of like we began, you know, 2300 years ago um, to the present. But since you mentioned uh, polio and the and the rush and um, really this like the acceptance kind of on the part of parents, like, hey, we really need something. We're terrified of this. Like we want a vaccine for our our families and even for ourselves. Um, I'm wondering if you can say about, and I think you draw parallels in the book between how polio was tested and that process and maybe even the COVID vaccine. And obviously we have access to uh, quicker tools for measuring statistics, but am I reading that correctly? Did you sort of make a parallel between the polio epidemic and then COVID? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, in both cases, there was this huge push to develop a vaccine. In the case of polio, particularly after World War II, um, partly because of you know the birth of baby boomers, that um, the post-war parents had a lot of kids and there was a big polio epidemic in 1952 and polio was just this omnipresent fear. I mean, I kind of came in at the tail end of that. Um, and even though there was a polio vaccine when I was, you know, in, in kindergarten, first grade, um, parents were still really afraid of polio and everybody knew somebody who had polio. Um, so, and I think COVID certainly invoked that, that kind of fear. And there was this huge push to develop a vaccine globally. Um, and in the United, in the case of polio, it was mostly in the United States that the vaccine development happened. There were some people elsewhere, but it was mostly in the United States. And in the case of COVID, though, it was a global effort because it was seen as a global disease. And vaccine development was much faster than with polio, partly because science changed. Um, and there were you know, all kinds of different kinds of vaccines. I mean, the, the polio vaccine is basically the same as um, Jenner's smallpox vaccine, basically a weaker version or a killed version of the virus. And the modern COVID vaccines are not that at all. They're quite different. They're based on um, the DNA and RNA of the virus. So, and DNA and RNA weren't actually known in the early 50s. So, it's, so it's, it's similar in the sense that there is a lot of public pressure. There was obviously the use of a lot of animals in the case of COVID um, because it's more like flu. Um, the animals that were used included ferrets and cats. Ferrets can get the flu and ferrets turn out to be really good models for human respiratory viruses. Um, that fascinated me. Yeah, when I yeah. read that, I was like, wow, ferrets. Yeah, ferrets. I mean, who knew? Um and the human testing was on not on children because I mean, polio is considered to be a, a childhood disease, although it wasn't entirely. Um, but in COVID, the case of COVID, they were human volunteers, adult volunteers, um, who tested various vaccines in 2020 and 2021. Um, it's funny, I don't, I don't know if you get this feeling, but kind of 2020 and 2021 are these kind of 
black holes. <laughs> so they are, yeah. The technology gets kind of screwed up. But, um, but I mean, the vaccines first can't come out toward the end of 2021. Um, so, yeah, no, not toward, in spring of 2021. So all of, but all, that entire time. Um, from beginning in about March, April, 2020, so very soon after the vac- the uh, COVID was declared a pandemic, vaccine development began. And it was, and, the, and because it was on multiple sites, l- there were lots of animals that were used um, to develop the COVID vaccine, lots of different animals. Um, and human testing starts to take place toward the beginning of 2021 um, on adult volunteers. And I know you don't address this specifically in, in the book in terms of like, you, you mentioned the types of animals that are used for COVID, but when you said um, cats, I was thinking about this wider discussion throughout the book of domestic animals. And I think, was it like the 17th or maybe earlier, 18th, 19th century, um, it, there was this belief that they could feel pain more because they were domesticated versus their wild counterparts. And dogs especially um, are just like this this recurring animal throughout the text of kind of like, we don't really feel comfortable <laughs> experimenting on these animals that live with us and share our space. So it's interesting, just going back to the COVID point, that's not talked about. Like we know it's on animals, but like where are these cats coming from? Like, are they breeding them for this purpose? Do they have genetically modified cats the way they do rats and mice? Okay. That's a good question. I'm not sure there are genetically modified cats, but I could be totally wrong about that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure where they get cats for this purpose. I'm, I'm guessing um, that they are bred, that there are breeding facilities because there are for dogs. Um, but I don't, I don't actually know. I've never really investigated that. Um, but cats also are pretty good models for respiratory viruses. Cats, cats can get colds. Um, and not all animals do. Um, ferrets can sneeze. Most, most animals don't sneeze. (laughs) So it's all, you know, all these considerations. So, I mean, in that case, rats are good in some ways, but rats don't sneeze and rats (laughs) don't have certain characteristics that, um, humans have, you know, in terms of, um, spreading the virus or in terms of, of, you know, respiratory viruses in general. Rats are not always very good models for that. Since we, we've just mentioned rats and, you know, where do you, where do you get these things? This is like a, it's a long question forever, right? Like sourcing your research subject. Um, And maybe this can be a chance where we hop back and give listeners a sense um, to, to the longer history. So Yes, there was, whenever you the text begins, it's 2,300 years ago, and you say it's this kind of window of time where the taboo of working with dead bodies or experimentation, it was less so. And so they can kind of, scientists, Aristotle researchers could kind of, or what we would call now researchers, would go in and started experimenting. Um, I think it might be helpful because it was for me as a reader this distinction between demonstration, experimentation, and vivisection, because you provide really good glimpses 
of those things? Demonstration that would be showing something without like changing it. Um, so you could demonstrate, say, the circulation of the blood even just by, by showing that it exists, by not causing any changes. Experimentation is to kind of test that, to cause some, to challenge it. So you would, when Harvey is um, show, you know, trying to find, trying to prove the circulation of blood, he does experiments to prove that the blood circulates. So he goes in and he ties off vessels. He shows, he pokes, um, you know, a probe into a vein to show where the valves are, which is more actually more of a demonstration in that case, because he's not causing anything to change. Whereas if you tie off a vessel, you're causing a change. And then you witness how that change shows you something else. This is really awkward (laughs) discussion. Um, Vivisection was a very specific term that referred to surgical intervention. So most of what Harvey did, for example, was vivisection because he would surgically intervene in an animal. He would cut an animal open to demonstrate the circulation of blood. Um, But a lot of experiments on animals didn't involve any kind of surgical intervention. So all the stuff that Pasteur did, for example, to um, develop the rabies vaccine. He's injecting animals with, um, with, with the disease particles. Um, so he, so strictly speaking, that's not vivisection because he's not surgically intervening. But vivisection has, has come to be a kind of blanket term for any kind of experimentation on animals or on humans. But the kind of, I mean, the literal meaning of it is to cut into an animal, to cut, cut into something that is alive. Thank you. I know that was a really technical discussion, but thank you. I found that really, (laughs) found that really useful. Um, Because I I thought vivisection was just experiments on live animals. Mm -hmm. And so I thought your discussion really helped provide more background and context for me in that regard. You mentioned Harvey. So that's William Harvey from the 17th century, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Was he the one who uh, did, he dissected his father? Who was the one who did that? Okay. His father was (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, this is. (laughs) He did. Yes. He did did the autopsy on his father. Um, And yeah. Um, Are there writings of him reflecting no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And that wasn't really an experiment. It was just an autopsy. It was just, it was a demonstration. So he doesn't, I don't think he does any experiments on his father's body. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I misspoke. Yeah, but it, it was so interesting that that was before an audience. Yes. Um, and I think part of that was because there weren't that many subjects for autopsy at that time. Um, Most people didn't want their bodies to be dissected after death and would, and particularly if you had the means to do so, you would, you know, you could ensure that that didn't happen. Um, So the people who were 
dissected after death. Um, there is no human vivisection at this point. Um, tended to be poor people or, uh, or criminals. Um, so sometimes autopsies were done for, you know, for forensic purposes to determine the cause of death or something like that. And, oops, sorry, there's a helicopter going by. <laughs> no worries. Wow, that's loud. Um, so then you would have kind of more, you know, middle class or upper class subjects for autopsies, but not for kind of the dissection to just, you know, show what the body looks like. Um, so when Harvey's father died, he decided to dissect him. And he did it, I believe, in front of the College of Physicians where he did anatomy lectures. Um, and, and I'm sure people at the time thought this was kind of callous. <laughs> but, um, and Har- yeah, Harvey is such an interesting character because in many ways, you know, in print, he comes across as this kind of reasonable, modest kind of guy. But then it's like, wow, he's doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I think yeah. in the book you write how, like, Descartes gets more of the bad rap for being yeah, definitely. this. But really, Harvey, you're like you're saying. Harvey's he's... doing it. Yeah, <laughs> Descartes is not doing it. He's just saying animal machine. But uh, Harvey's maybe treating uh, animals like machines or things to look at. Um, speaking of test subjects, um, I really want to jump to the three um, enslaved women in Alabama. And I'm really curious about just, or any, for any person who was deemed lesser than a vile body, or like you're saying, um, you know, prisoners may have volunteered for their freedom, um, not volunteered, but they may have agreed to experimentations for the chance of freedom. Um, and then in the case of these three women who went through like 30 gynecological, gynecological operations, um, in terms of notes for, for groups who were abused, how were there individual stories available or how did you go about learning about the person? Oh, well, um, the, the guy who did the, the gynecological experiments, uh, Marion Sims, he published about these things. I think, I mean, other researchers have kind of done the work to find out who the women were and find out their names um, and so forth, because he certainly didn't publish that. Um, but he was um, upheld for a long time as a pioneering surgeon who found out, you know, all these things about female um, anatomy and so forth, and a pioneer of gynecological surgery, which I, yeah, he was, but I mean, he did some pretty horrendous things to women, you know, without anesthesia. And the reason he could do it is because they were enslaved women. He couldn't do that on the, you know, his, his fellow whites in, in the South, um, but he could do it to women who were enslaved. And that's, yeah, now we look at that and it's like, that is horrible. And it was horrible. So, but on the other hand, he was upheld, as I said, as, you know, as a founder of gynecological surgery. 
and I'm not enough of a, you know, I'm not knowledgeable enough in medicine to know whether what he found out could not have been found out by other means or eventually or whatever, but um, that's what he did. And there was a statue to him until 2018 in New York. So, yeah. Were the names of the women that he uh, experimented on, Lucy and Arca and Betsy, and I'm assuming there were probably others as well, were those included in the primary source material that you may have looked at in his notes? No, I didn't look at his notes, but I, I used um, secondary material and they, they gave the names. There are researchers who, who have found, found out a lot more about this by looking at his manuscripts and, and I think contemporary accounts. Um, while we're talking about women, I was thinking about, especially with like gynecological research, was it um, Dr. Anna Kingsford and then was it Bradford? Uh, Blackwell, Elizabeth Black- Blackwell. Okay. So they, if I remember correctly, they were kind of the first ones to be like, hey, um, wasn't there some observation that they made about men testing on women's bodies? Yes. And um, Anna Kingsford in particular compared this to vivisection. Um, this was a period in the kind of last third of the 19th century when um, the kind of Victorian mores were really oppressive to women and women who were deemed to be, you know, his quote unquote hysterical were subject to having their clitorises cut out to um, having even having hysterectomies because it was thought that it was the female organs that somehow made you crazy. Um, And Anna Kingsford and Elizabeth Blackwell both were like, no, that's just no. Just no. Um, so I don't know how else to say it. Um, and and Anna Kingsford, particular in particular, compared this to vivisection of animals. Um, that this is you know the same thing, and if you're anti-vivisection, you have to be opposed to this as well. And there's a whole kind of mingling of women in the anti-vivisection movement, and there were a lot of women in the anti-vivisection movement, and then this kind of gynecological surgery that was going on at the same time. Um, so it really made this this kind of um, moral obligation um, more pressing because when she made that comparison. Some people thought she was kind of nuts, um, Anna Kingsford, because she did kind of put herself out there. Um, I think you're right that she even offered herself as a replacement for experiments on animals. Did anything come of that other than you, you follow up on like, you know, her male colleagues was like, this confirms that she's overly emotional and hysterical. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, nothing. No, nothing came of that. Um, And Elizabeth Blackwell, um, was very important. Well, they were both physicians. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first American female physician um, who's, who, yeah, um, who studied in New York, upstate New York. Um, and she was seen as being less hysterical than Anna Kingsford, but they were saying much, many of the same things. I, um, 
I all of you anytime you know a woman appeared in the text because of course you know history very white very male I perked up um, but I do think it was interesting to see how women also participated um, for for harm as well as in the case of the Princess of Wales who paid for the inoculation of orphans at St. James and you as you're like oh she's you know paying for orphans to be vaccinated it's like oh but then you follow up and show. <laughs> This was basically a an experiment or a trial before she vaccinates her own kids. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of presented as this charitable gesture, but on the other hand, yeah, it's it's totally an experiment. I mean, first they did it on prisoners, and then they did it on orphans, and it's like, okay, and then I will vaccinate my child. Which I have to say, Mary Wortley Montague just went ahead and vaccinated her children, her inoculated, I should say her children before any of these experiments were done. Her story was really fascinating too. Um, You write that she was the ambassador for Constantinople. She Um, was the wife. wife Sorry, the wife. (laughs) We could hope, right, that she would be. 1718, there are no female ambassadors, I'm afraid. Um, But she did, and she was like, hey, I've observed, right? She had observed this practice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was wonderful. And she had had smallpox and she felt that it really ruined her looks. So she didn't want her children to have to experience this. Um, and, you know, also the risk of dying. But, um, but the fear of being disfigured was a, was a big part of smallpox too. I mean, there, it was, the death rates were really high. I mean, 20 to 30%, which is, you know, death rate for COVID is like 1% or something. Um, so don't quote me on that, but I think that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, the death rate was very high, but also if you had smallpox, you would be disfigured for life. You could be blinded, um, but you would certainly have, you know, pockmarks. And particularly for someone like her, who as an aristocratic woman, a lot of her value in society was her looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was considered a great beauty. And after she had smallpox, you know, she lost her her eyebrows and her eyelashes, and and I assume had had pockmarks and felt that her looks were ruined. And she didn't particularly didn't want that to happen to her daughter. Yeah, her story um, her story was really fascinating, um, and and really all of the discussion of smallpox and the different therapies that were tried. Um, I think earlier you were talking about with Queen Elizabeth, uh, the red room therapy or surrounding yourself with red flannel or that red would somehow excise the, the disease. Draw it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of principle of like attracts like that it would draw out the pox if you had something red surrounding you. Um, I want to go to kind of this idea that it, it's sort of a um, dichotomy that's set up throughout the text of the scientist as either villain or hero. And um, I was thinking about Harry Harlow, um, who did more psychological experiments, much of what we've been talking about is like biomedical. Um, but he's a really interesting case. And I would love to hear more about there were benefits, it seems, based on what I read from what he discovered, but also like he went really far. <laughs> and um, and I think as you suggest that he was maybe a bit too guided by his own subjective need to prove something. 
Yeah, Harlow is a really interesting case because in the past few decades, he's certainly been classified as, you know, a real villain in particularly because he used, not only did he use monkeys, but he used baby monkeys. Mm -hmm. And he did really, you know, his kind of final experiments. And I know John Gluck, his, his former student who has written about these. um, And John, I know, feels, you know, feels really bad to have participated in in these experiments. But as he said at the time, it was like, that was what you did. You were part of the lab. You went in there and there were these baby monkeys at the bottom of, you know, the pits of despair. And um, you couldn't handle them. You couldn't do anything. And it was just part of your kind of training as a student that you would be part of these experiments. And the expectation was that you would get publications out of it. You would get things to advance your career. Um, And you were kind of trained not to think about what the other implications were, that this was that the animals were just instruments, Um, kind of like, you know, the the autoclave or something. They were just, they were just instruments in the experiment. So, and I think Harlow kind of, yeah, took, took that farther than once people started thinking about it, which was quite a while after he did these experiments um, were kind of, no, you can't just do that. That's really cruel. And it's, I mean, and particularly psychologically cruel i mean the Mm -hmm. things with the mothers you know Mm -hmm. um, kind of the the mothers with spikes and the (laughs) mothers with who were cold and the mothers who blasted cold air on the babies and yes this made the babies really psycho and you know you're thinking that well duh but Mm -hmm. but at the time in the 50s particularly there was all kinds of um discussions about overprotective mothers and that um, as I was saying with Harlow, I think in the fifties and before, and I I gave the example, I think of um, little Albert (laughs) and um, in the twenties that children had to be conditioned, but also that if mothers were too, what were called, you know, smothering mothers were too affectionate that would adversely affect children's development, that you had to let babies cry. Dr. Spock famously said that, that you couldn't, um, yeah, you just couldn't be too, show too much overt um, affection to children um, because they would be ruined. They would be spoiled. Um there were there was this kind of I was think of the the kind of monster mother in the Manchurian Candidate if you've seen that movie, mm-hmm. where Angela Lansbury plays uh, Lawrence Harvey's mother and she's like you know this evil manipulative mother but that was kind of in some ways the model of the evil mother in the fifties that if you were too motherly if you you, yeah, you would just, you would create these psychotic children. And of course, what Harlow is showing is that if you're not motherly, you create yeah. psychotic children. 
So that was kind of a good thing that, yes, children really do need affection. Um, and actually showing that on, on primates inadvertently also showed that primates feel these emotions as much as humans do. Um, so, yeah, so they were interesting experiments very much of their time, I would say, to, to sh- in terms of having to show the effects of, you know, deprivation of affection. Um, but I don't think they would pass most um, animal care and use committees now. That <laughs> kind of... I hope they wouldn't. Uh, I hope we've progressed. <laughs> I know. And yeah, and most, most people now look at them and it's like, God, <laughs> that's awful. How could you do this to these poor animals? To the mothers and to the babies. I mean, to make kind of psycho mothers and psycho babies mm-hmm. by doing this, you know, sensory deprivation, deprivation of affection experiments, which just seem really unspeakably cruel now. And I, I was so fascinated that you had talked with John Gluck. Was that his name? Yeah. Who was a, he was a student of Harlow's? Yes. Yeah. And did he, does he have any kind of like residual trauma from this as well? I mean, it just seemed like a very. Well, he's written, <laughs> he's, um, he read several articles and he's written a book actually about his kind of recognition after the fact that, um, these were, were morally indefensible experiments. So yeah, I think he does have a lot of remorse about this. And so interesting, I was thinking about um, just an anecdote that I was talking to someone whose spouse works at the, the New Iberia Research Facility, which is just down the road for me. And the he was just saying how loud it is and how it really will drive you it, you feel like you're going to go mad um, because the conditions are just so, so loud. Um, but thinking about Harlow and, you know, the use of primates in research, he, he developed a breeding facility too, right? Okay. Because that was, again, going back to where do you actually source these research subjects from? Um, you were saying that a lot, especially the rhesus macaque, which is a common primate used in, in research, um, it was originally um, imported from southern India, um, but of course the numbers got so low um, that I guess there was a need to create breeding sites here. And most most of the breeding facilities now for primates are in China, which has um, oh I hear a cat. Is that a hairball? <laughs> We told you guys it's the animal studies channel. There's going to be animal pricing. <laughs> Your cat does not like uh, that breeding facility discussion <laughs> about primates. <laughs> Poor baby. Um, anyways, most monkeys, research monkeys now come from China, like many other things. Um, and one of the effects of COVID was actually. Um, a, a shortage of monkeys, primates used in research because China stopped exporting them in in 2020. Um, and I have never been to one of their breeding facilities, but they're immense. They're like 10,000 monkeys 
in one facility. And um, as some people have pointed out, China has a lot fewer restrictions on animal use in science than most other countries. And so, and so, but these monkeys are, you know, go all over the world. And I think most people don't even realize where they come from. Um, So, and they've been replaced by um, monkeys that are actually captured in the wild in uh, Cambodia and, and other places. Um, the nuts, rhesus macaques, and also another related uh, species called Sinomulgus macaques. Um, so, yeah, just in case you wondered where they came from, they're mostly not bred here now. They're mostly imported. Wow. Um... Yeah. And just thinking, I'm just, that was one thing is reading this book is just like, where do you actually get the research subjects? And that was no matter which century it was, <laughs> that was just a persistent question. And it made me think about this fascinating, expensive rat or three rats. <laughs> you talk about, this is in the last chapter, um, how for sale in, I guess, research catalogs, which I didn't know exist, but of course they would, I guess. Um, between $17,000 and like $36,000, um, you can get a, you know, genetically modified or made rat <laughs> to then start your own breeding in your lab. Yeah. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. For those, for those in particular. Yeah. But you can also just order kind of, um, custom bred mice and rats, um, that are, genetically modified but the germline isn't modified so they wouldn't necessarily breed rats that are like them these um the ones that are so expensive are actually modified so that they will give birth to rats like them but you can also just order you know i don't know a hundred um knockout rats or whatever that have you know particular genes knocked out so that they respond in certain ways and so forth. Um, yeah, the custom-made rats and mice is a big industry. That was one fascinating through line from Descartes to the present of thinking about the animal, animal machine, beast machine. And I think you, you kind of address that with like, if we can truly manufacture um, these, we, in a way, they're just like little machines that we can use to test on. So that idea definitely still persists, um, even with our newest technology, which I guess is a good time to maybe talk about CRISPR, which is where um, the book ends up. So maybe just provide us a little overview of what that is. I'm sure many of us know, but just in case, Um, and then how it has especially impacted experimentation. So CRISPR, and I am totally not an expert on this, but it's a basically a molecular. It's a tool to edit genes. It um, enables to kind of a, a protein that enables you to go in and sort of snip, take a, remove a gene and put another one in its place. Um, and it makes this relatively easy and inexpensive, so that you can create genetically modified animals much more easily and you can also genetically modify animals so that you can affect the germline that is you can basically um, create animals that will clone each other that will breed 
other animals just like them. So you can affect the um, inheritance down the line. Is this, will it reduce the amount of animals needed because it will reduce variability? And I don't know. I mean, is this positive? (laughs) I don't know. It makes it easier to modify animals because at least to begin with, when you started this idea of modifying, say, rats, it was by breeding. And so you would have to go through several generations. You would pick a variation that was useful, and then you would breed animals to express that variation. But it would take time. It would take several generations. And actually, some of the um, purpose-bred rats early in the 20th century, um, a couple of women were really responsible for that. Um, There were some pretty well-known women who worked in these labs who were breeding rats. Um, So so CRISPR basically takes out the middleman, sort of, go right in and just change the gene. You don't have to go through this process of of selective breeding. and so it, it makes it much easier to create these kind of custom-made animals. But also, you know, in theory, it can make it, and this is part of the hype about CRISPR, is that you could change um, people mm-hmm. to eliminate certain diseases. You could breed people who don't have certain, you know, genetic abnormalities, say. You could get rid of... Down syndrome or other genetic diseases. Although, as I point out, some of the things that are you know referred to as diseases, like you know, deafness or um, dwarfism, are not really diseases. Um, and you know, that just brings up a whole other issue about disability and how we define it and the value of disabled people and so forth and so on. So it's like anything is something that could be fixed is what um, CRISPR kind of leads to, this idea that we can fix, quote unquote, defective people. Um, And that makes it kind of ethically problematic, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and yeah, and this is, you know, something that's happened in the past decade. I mean, um, so I think we're still really, ethics takes a long time to catch up with practice in many cases. And in this case, I think ethics is was caught totally flat-footed and has really not caught up with the science here. That, so. I, I, I'm not quoting directly from the text, but one question or statement that you posed was, what do we do with all this knowledge that we've had? And I like what you said, like we're kind of caught, um, you know, and and this is kind of, I guess, to the ending point of where the book ends up about One Health, which I'll ask you to kind of describe that global movement in just a moment. Um, But what I find so important about this book is that you're saying, hey, here is what we've done. Here's where we're coming from, Uh, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, And what are we going to continue to do um, as we we find we we gain more knowledge and we gain more more tools. Um, and so the One Health organization, or sorry, not organization, is it an organization? Not really. It's, okay, it's, it's a, a movement. It's a movement. It's kind of a 
set of ideas, I guess. Okay. Um, and is that, it seems like you're in support of that movement, possibly. Yeah. yeah okay. So, so the idea of One Health is that human and animal health are intimately related, not only because, you know, we use animals to find out about human health, but human and animal health actually are intimately intertwined and that this in turn is intertwined with the health of the environment. So I think this is a really powerful idea. Um, I think that, um, so animal and human medicine became separate basically in starting in the 18th century when veterinary schools start to be founded in Europe, which is, you know, in the 1750s. And really, um, and that was mainly for animals that were, you know, used in, that was for horses. It was for animals that were used in um, commerce in, it wasn't really for pets. Um, so veterinary science become changes over the course of the 19th century and the 20th century into something that is not very much related to human health. Um, because it's animals that are, you know, companion animals. It's it's um, animals that we use in various ways. And I think bringing those two forms of medicine closer together will both give us greater awareness of how much we owe to animals in terms mm-hmm. of finding out about human diseases and other things, but also that human and animal health is really interrelated, um, that we get animal diseases, animals get human diseases, but also I, just in so many ways and in terms of um, the health of the environment, how we treat animals, the ideas about animal health are really important, obviously. Um, well, obviously to me. So I think it's a really important uh, way of thinking about our relationship with animals and with the, re- and with the world. I love that. And um, before we, we wrap up and I ask you what you're currently working on, I'd like to just say that I think this book um, is is foundational reading, I think, for anyone who's interested in that One Health movement or thinking more broadly from whatever discipline you come from. I'm coming from an English and, and poetry background. Um, you can come from, I think, any discipline and and really find something in here that will hopefully push us to be more considerate um, with our knowledge and how we use it. So thank you for writing this book. Um, it's, it's exciting. Well, thank you. Um, what I'm working on now, I'm, I mean, I'm really an early modernist, so I really work mainly on the period of kind of 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And we're on a, a couple of things. Um, I'm thinking about doing a biography of William Harvey, actually, for um, – a series called Renaissance Lives. I haven't sent in my proposal yet, so but that's what I'm <laughs> if you say about. it, it might. That's good. You, you put it out there, so start doing it. <laughs> but um, the other, I have a couple of other projects. One is about um, kind of a history of the human skeleton, um, which includes how it's been displayed and uh, used in museums in terms of human. Um, human artifacts. Um, And the other project, which is related to that, is about, um, this is going to sound really silly, it's about giants and um, how 
in the 16th and 17th century in particular, there was um, a lot of fossils, fossil bones were found that were thought to be the bones of human giants. They weren't, they were mostly the bones of, of like mammoths and things wow. like that. Um, but this, but it fit into this whole kind of mythology that had been built up um, since the middle ages about um, that we all used to be giants, basically that after, um, after the flood, Noah was a giant and he be, you know, gave birth to generations of giants, but gradually we got smaller. So finding these bones then kind of supported that narrative. Um, and do we become I, smaller because of like moral failure? Well, like that's not, that's not clear, but it's mm. and it kind of gets very tangled up because then you start thinking about chronology. It's like, well, how long would it take mm-hmm. for someone who is thirty feet tall to get <laughs> six feet tall? How many generations? You know, and you just yeah, it gets very tangled up. But um, but just the kind of I became really interested in kind of the stories that get attached to it because they're very much kind of national stories, stories of national origins. Um, and particularly in Europe, a lot of these giants are thought to be the Gauls. And there's this whole mythology of the Gauls, and not just in France, but everywhere. It's wonderful. So who were, yeah. you know, giant, even in Roman times that Gaulish warriors were thought to be giants and just how this kind of pans out and it and enters into the history of archaeology, the history of paleontology. And it's not really until the 18th century that um, people start realizing that, no, these are not human bones. A, they're not human bones. B, they're really old. So they don't fit into the kind of current chronologies. Um, and what does that mean? Um, so were they classified in museums as people ever? No, well, not <laughs> one, not by the 18th century. No, okay, because people had a bit, but it's yeah, it's <laughs> because it's kind of well, they look. I mean, some people are like, well, they look kind of like elephant bones, except nobody, very few people in Europe had actually seen an elephant mm-hmm. at this point. So you can, you know. So how do you, and then, and then it's like, well, okay, if they're elephant bones, how did they get to France? (laughs) Northern Germany. It's like, yeah, maybe they're not elephant, but well, I don't know. Are they giants? Are they not? And it just goes back and forth and kind of the, the histories that are written, invented around these bones, I just find really fascinating. Well, I think we have a, a future New Books Network interview. It's going to be three times coming back. So, <laughs> I'm I'm excited to follow to follow that work. Um, again, you know, the human and the animal together, like animal bones mistaken exactly. for human. So all that overlap, and we're animals, right? Humans are animals. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and kind of the the stories we make up to to talk about our own histories. Um, and to make them fit this physical evidence. Well, Anita, it's been an absolute delight um, to have you here today. And um, everyone check out this book uh, published with Johns Hopkins University Press, Experimenting with Humans and Animals from Aristotle to CRISPR. All right. Thank you so much, Anita. Thank you, Kelly. It's been really fun. Thanks a lot.